This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. How many mics? How many mics? You got me? Oh, yeah. I got you now. You say it's working. Yeah. Oh. That's better. Ta-da. That's better. Ta-da. All right. Are you finally ready? Man, I was born ready. This, this podcast is what I was born to do. okay i guess we're in we're live this podcast (laughs) is what you were born to do hey dude uh it was weird man something weird's happening we missed last week as i was traveling in florida there was a hurricane all this crazy stuff and it was like there's an empty hole you know like I, i recorded a few episodes regular monday episodes but it just it wasn't the best stuff it it still feels like the best times are together. You know, get that raspy Brian Adams. Actually, that's pretty creepy because that song is like super romantic. Um, good to be Dude, back, I, I, that, that, that might be appropriate, man. That might be appropriate. It might be time for a holy moment. You know, um, <laughs> have you ever, <laughs> you ever seen Rush Hour with uh, Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan? Oh, they just that kinda, movie was amazing. They get into a, just a big fight about the, the proper way to go about it, and they decide to split up. And they're just both walking along, walking alone. And you just see that it's not the same, man. These guys weren't meant to be apart. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on the way back from uh, Florida, I was down there with the family for a few days. We stopped, <laughs> we stopped at this gas station. And it just hit me how absolutely absurd the environmental um, religion is. I don't even want to call it a, a movement. Even a religion is too uh, flattering because – it actually doesn't involve any real form of action or even like belief in any meaningful challenging sense. It almost has just devolved into, well, I don't even know. Here's, here's what made me think of this. I'm pumping gas and I look up and there's a sign above the gas pump that says, it has like a picture of gas station coffee. And it says our hazelnut and French vanilla flavors are also good for the environment. (laughs) And I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what this can possibly mean. Like drink our coffee. It's good for the environment. Like, like what does good for the environment even mean at this point? I mean, I, I was utterly baffled by it, but it kind of read to me like, you know, um, buy this, you'll be a good person or just like, you know, breathe air good for the earth. Like I, I, it was amazing. And it just it reminded me of, you know, we've talked a lot about words and meaning and signaling and, that one got to a level of meaninglessness. I don't even have any analysis to offer. I have no insight about it. It just made me laugh, so I had to I had to share it. Dude, my favorite is uh, Michelle and I were driving by a subway once, and it was a really hot day. And I kid you not, they had they had a little sign outside that said, "Beat the heat with a subway sub." <laughs> and <laughs> and we were both like, "Wait a minute! I can see a sign outside of Seven Eleven, like beat the heat with the Seven Eleven Slurpee." But I'm like, "How is a subway sub gonna help me beat the heat?" I want to meet the guy who bought the sub that day for that person. <laughs> Dude, we got we should we should try to come up with like total non sequitur marketing campaigns. You know, we, we should do some for this show. I don't know. We we could think of some. I'm sure, but it'd be too easy to connect any of them to some plausible reason like those are just really those are hard to beat uh speaking of stories you told me you had a good story about the barbershop and as a as a white dude 
I just like so desperately want to be a part of the black barbershop culture. So I want just yeah. give me a story and I could live vicariously. <laughs> so first of all, I've been deliberately sporting a bald head all my life because I just want to be like Mike. And I've, I've been wearing a bald head. I'm glad since. you don't do that gross mustache. <laughs> right. The, yeah. The terrible, terrible stash. But I've been doing that since like my freshman year. And I just decided, you know what? I'm just going to grow my hair out. Let's just try something different. So I, I haven't cut my hair in about two to three months. And I went to the barbershop for the first time just the other week. And being in the barbershop for 10 minutes, if you've never been to a black barbershop, there is truly on, it is truly unlike any other experience on earth. And just being in there for 10 minutes, I was convinced, you know what? I need to keep my hair, even if I don't like it, for no other reason than to have a legit excuse to come into the barbershop every week or every other week. Mm -hmm. So it's funny. So um, I'm, I'm getting my hair cut. And the guy who's cutting my hair, you know, he's cool. You know, we're, we're, we're getting along pretty well. And there's a guy next to him who is just this really popular dude. Everybody's coming in, asking for him, talking to him. And apparently the guy makes music because people are asking him, you know, for beats and if they can hook, if he can hook them up with beats and when they can call him and all this kind of stuff. So he's clearly the dude in the shop with the most swag. But like I said, the guy that I had, he's pretty cool too. So after the guy sitting, you know, cutting hair next to us finishes, uh, finishes his guy, he, he walks over to, to my chair and he just looks me up and down, sizes me up, and then he looks at my barber, and he and he does like a full circle where he where he looks at the you know my head, and he's looking at the way this guy's cutting my hair, and he's not saying anything, and then he just tells the other guy, he goes, "Give me the clippers," <laughs> and 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 the other guy he laughs kind of nervously like, "Ha, ah, quit playing, man, ha," ah. and the dude doesn't laugh. He goes, "Give me the clippers, fool." <laughs> and and the other guy's like, ah, you tripping, man? You tripping, dog?" And I'm just sitting there, like, "Okay, what are you? What's what's going on? Are you gonna cut my hair? Or are you gonna just like let this guy take the clippers from you?" And 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 then the guy says a third time, he goes, "Hey, I ain't playing. Give me the clippers." And he snatches the clippers from his hand and he says, "Get out of the way, fool!" <laughs> and he starts cutting my hair and. The other guy just goes and he sits down and he just watches. And immediately, because of this guy's confidence, I don't know who's better. I don't know what's going on and how to explain what just occurred. But because that guy had so much confidence and the other dude let him take the clippers from his hand, I immediately decided this is the guy I want cutting my hair. He's got the confidence. He's got the initiative. He took charge of this situation. That other dude who gave up the clippers, he's never cutting my hair again. <laughs> dude. <laughs> That story is amazing. It speaks on so many levels, like the the power of just owning it, just whatever <laughs> you do, just owning it with such that that's that's where it all comes from. Because nobody knows what they're doing, and nobody else knows what they're doing either, and nobody knows who knows what they're doing. So if you just own whatever it is you do, and you're completely like sure of yourself in it. That's 90% of the battle. Like you genuinely feel, because a haircut is a subjective experience. Your experience of a haircut, you walk away thinking it was really good just because of how this guy owned it and was like, get out of the way. Let me step in there. That's brilliant. Hey, dude, I'm just going to dial in one day when you're doing a podcast interview. I'm going to be like, hey, give me the mic. Give me the mic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing this interview. I ain't playing, fool. 
<laughs> I wonder, you know, that other guy who sat down, is there, is there another option he could have had in that moment? Like if he was just more, you know, alpha, could he have just like stepped up and said, <laughs> no, I got this, you know, like, like, what do you do in that situation? If you're that guy, is he just, is it, is it just that he put out a vibe of weakness that allowed the other guy to come? Do you know what I'm saying? Oh man. You know what? I have seriously had a thought before about observing people in certain situations. H- have you ever experienced something and you thought to yourself that a particular person that, you know, they would never find themselves in that situation just because the way they carry themselves. Oh, yeah. So, so for instance, my, my brother Lamar, he tends to be a lot less charitable with people uh, than I am. And he doesn't allow anyone to waste his time. You have to prove to him that you're worth his time, that you're worth the conversation, whereas I tend to be the opposite, right? And there, there have been moments where I've allowed people to waste my time or I've allowed people to troll me or I've allowed people to maybe ruffle my feathers or bait me into stupid arguments. And I, I would always think about Lamar in those moments and I would say, Lamar would never even be in this moment. I can't even imagine what he would do in that situation. Yeah, it's not because a question I, of how, I would, can't how imagine. would he respond, you know? It's like, yeah. well, he would never have to respond to this. Yeah, he, he would never have that moment. Never have that moment. And, and I, I feel like there are just some people, because of the way they carry themselves, certain types of scenarios don't even present themselves to them. Now, I'm not, I'm not putting it on this guy and saying the way he dressed or the way he carried himself was to blame, but, but, I, but I do think there's another guy in that barbershop that probably wouldn't have gotten that response because maybe he just sends out a vibe that I'm not the one, you know what I mean? I'm not the one so to play around with. The way you framed it, though, you were like, you know, some people just would never have this happen, but can that be learned? I mean, certainly in your life, I think you have, as you have learned and adapted and changed, there are fewer, um, for example, time-wasting experiences that come your way. There are fewer times you get trapped with somebody who's just sucking your time and providing no value because you have learned to carry yourself differently. Would you say that's true? Yeah, absolutely. I I think it can, but but I don't think it can, I don't think you can succeed at this by adopting some sort of technique no, to the minute be you try alpha. to study a technique, you're already you've already basically admitted defeat. Yeah, like, it, it reminds you know, the people who study how to be funny are already not funny. Sorry, TJ. Um, it, it, no, no, it, it reminds me of a, of a friend <laughs> See, that even right there you did it. You're like, no, 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 it's fine. I take no offense. <laughs> <laughs> See, I have oh. to learn to be alpha. I'm the guy at the barbershop. Yeah, just go ahead and take my clippers. I'll go sit down and. <laughs> Defer to you, Isaac. (laughs) I accept that. (laughs) It's quite all right. (laughs) As I'm talking about how I've become more alpha over the years. (laughs) Yeah, man, I don't let people mess around with me anymore. Oh, no, it's okay. Just go ahead and make fun of me as as I get to make a a few points here. Uh, (laughs) But, dude, it reminds me of an experience you and I had with an old friend who came to us uh, for advice about a girl. And he was just sort of being a little too pushy, a little too aggressive early on as he's trying to get this girl's attention. And we were like, dude, just back off a little bit. Just back off and relax. You know, there's something attractive about having something else going on besides the girl that you're interested in. I mean, just just chill and relax, you know. Um, And I remember he did that and he came to us and was like, hey, guys, 
I backed off a little bit and relaxed and uh, and now she's liking me more. It's working. It's working. And and we were both laughing because we were like, okay, but that's not a technique for getting the girl. That's, <laughs> that's just self-respect, you know? So I, I think it's important that, you know, when you make changes that allow you to, I guess we'll call it becoming more alpha, it, it, it stems from a place of just respecting yourself and understanding the value of making a behavioral change rather than adopting some technique like, I'm going to go to the gym three days a week because that is a really good technique to get women to like me. You know, I, I think when you do stuff like that, you just exude desperation. Yeah, it's it's you know the, I mean? paradoxical if your motivation for, you know, improved self-knowledge and self-esteem or whatever you want to call it is because you hope it will improve people. You know, you'll make people like you more like you've already you've already defeated. You've already undermined your, your premise. You're 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 looking for the very thing that you're trying to learn not to need. And that's a, that's a, it's a tough paradox. I think it's a tough trap for some people to get into. And I certainly think different people are, I think anyone can learn to be the dominant driving force in their life, to be definite of purpose, to be, you know, to own what they do, to, to carry that kind of swag that people don't want to, and don't, aren't able to take advantage of them. Um, I think anyone can, there's no like, you've learned it, you haven't learned it. It's not binary. Like you can become more and more that way or less and less that way. Um, but it's a it's a probabilistic thing, I would say. Some people are born personality-wise, you know, nature with less of that than others. And then there's also the nurture component. Some people are raised in environments um, where that makes them less likely to do that. Uh, and, you know, the, the ability to do that is harder and some more. And so you've got these various factors. It's not like, hey, it's your own fault. People take advantage of you. Uh, nor is it like, well, it's just your personality. You'll always be Mr. Magoo or whatever. Um, it's actually Mr. Magoo. It was the opposite. He did stupid things but never had bad outcomes. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a probability, you know. I, I think of it that way. I think it, thinking of things about probable instead of possible and varying degrees of probability is much, much better. So like if you're trying to hire someone for a job, let's say a sales job that requires a high degree of that sort of swagger and confidence and, you know, alphaness, whatever you want to call it. It's not like, you know, as a quick, as a quick shortcut to make a hiring decision, you're going to sort of see it as this person just doesn't have it. And this person does have it. And that's effective as a shortcut. But I think in reality, it's more like, this person already has a lot of it and the probability they can get more is very high. This person has less and the probability they can get more is lower. Anyone can, um, but it's more of a, it's more of a probabilistic thing. Uh, I would say, w would you, would you agree with that? Or do you think it's, um, you know, am I, am I being too gray here? No, I, I totally agree. It goes back to something we've talked about before the, the Zig Ziglar idea that sales is a transference of filling. And the way people respond to you is often a reflection of how you feel about yourself. So just think about how you feel at various times when you're buying something from someone. If that person seems a little nervous or unsure, you know, like, should I buy the product? You know, it's just kind of like a little awkward. You're nervous and you're unsure. But if that person if that person is willing to tell you what to do and say, here's what I think you should do based on what you tell me you want. Here's what I think you should do. And here's why. And they're just confident you buy into that confidence. I, I remember interviewing our, our Praxis alumni, Mitchell Broderick, about this. And he was saying when people come to him 
most salespeople are afraid of telling people what to do because they don't want to become they don't want to be rude. He says, but when people come to him, they're looking for the guy who's willing to take charge of the situation, be confident in what he knows and what he does for a living, who listens to them talk about what their needs are and who just tells them this is what you need. This is what you need. And he says when he's confident like that and says this is what you need. People tend to love that and they tend to be confident in him because they're not buying the product. They're buying the confidence that he has in the product. And I think there's so much about life that works that way, too. We tend to think that comedians, for instance, get away with saying all sorts of things that other people don't get away with just because they know how to make it funny. And that's certainly a part of it. But comedians often say things that we all wish we could say and Sometimes the big difference is taking ownership of it, saying, yeah, I said it, I own it, not going to back down, not going to be nervous when I say it, not going to apologize. And, and sometimes when, you, when, when people can see that you're nervous when you're saying it and you're getting choked up and you're giving a bunch of prefaces, it, it just makes them want to pounce on you. It just makes them nervous. And, you know, so I, I think having that confidence really does raise that probability that people will respond with the like mind, you know? You know, I, I think uh... – to understand the because a lot of people get scared of portraying that kind of confidence because if they're wrong they don't want to ruin someone's life or whatever this is where economic thinking is important if you understand that people make decisions on the margin this idea of thinking on the margin it erases almost all of this and i'll give you an example so i was at the charleston airport recently and i'm waiting for my flight and i want a cup of coffee so i go up to the the coffee place and there were two women working there and the first one, uh, I think it was Lisa. I said, uh, "Hey, Lisa, how you doing?" She said, "Good." I said, "All right, I want I want a cup of coffee, just a small cup of coffee, um, <clears throat> but you know, I want something like a little dark roast, like kind of good smoky. Is your brewed coffee, the dark coffee, really good, or should I just get an americano?" And she goes, "Um, well, I don't know. I, you know, um, I guess either one." And the other woman back there was busy doing something, and I think it was Tamika. She goes, get the brewed coffee. The dark roast is amazing. You'll love it. I go, I'm sold. I'll get it. And I go, see, <laughs> I go, see Lisa, it didn't really matter which one. You just got to have confidence in it. You, you scared me there. I was worried about your coffee. Just own it. Just tell me which one. She goes, well, I didn't want you to get it and not like it because I don't know what your taste is. And I said, look. I'm deciding between two two types of coffee that are pretty similar. It's a subjective experience how much I enjoy it. The fact that Tamika has so much confidence in the dark roast, I'm already feeling psyched about drinking it. And that's probably going to make me enjoy it. You know, even if it's not objectively better, how am I going to know? I'm going to, I was like, little sales tip for you. She's like, okay. And it was all good fun. And they were laughing. But I think what the, the insight here, people worry about that. It's they, they feel like they're being asked and they're going to be accountable for someone else's life. You know, is this coffee objectively better than this coffee? Like always for all time in all instances in, you know, in the cosmos. No, it's, it's a decision on the margin. The fact that I'm coming over there to buy a cup of coffee means I already know I want coffee. I already know I like coffee. I already know I'm going to be spending about $2 and the difference between one that's so, so, and one that's good is like such a marginal difference. In fact, I care so little about it that I'm willing to completely outsource the decision to a stranger I've never met before. 
All I want <laughs> yeah. is that person to give me a psychic feeling that I'm incapable of generating myself in that moment about the tiny marginal difference between two types of coffee. And understanding that this decision is just this marginal decision and that I've already signaled to you that it's not valuable to me more than a few dollars, more than a few, you know, um, says just go confidently with this is the one you should get. And you, that like, it's not like I'm saying, Hey, should I kill a man? You know, it's not like I'm like, Hey, should I marry <laughs> right, this right. girl? Right? Like I'm making decisions on the margin. And so I think that's a huge thing I notice with wait staff all the time. Like when I say, is mm -hmm. the, is the chicken better than the fish? When they're like scared that they'll tell me the wrong thing, I'm immediately less likely to enjoy whatever I order. Cause I'm immediately questioning everything on the menu. I'm like, well, they're not even willing to like stake a claim in anything. I guess all their food is just kind of mediocre. Whereas if they're like, get the chicken, trust me. I'm like psyched up. I'm happy. I'm, I'm anticipating. So I think it helps to kind of understand the context of those decisions. You know, it's not like I'm truly coming to be like, I have no ability to make decisions for my life. Um, you know, should I move to another country? Tell me and it will, de it will determine my fate. It's a, it's a tiny decision on the margin that I, that I already am like, you know, I really just want you. I'm outsourcing the confidence in the decision to you. I'm not really outsourcing the decision because I've already decided either of these will be fine. I just want to be confident and I don't know. I want you to be that confidence for me. And that's, it's such a tiny marginal thing. Oh man. So two things. First, your coffee story reminds me of a time when Shelly and I went to the movies and we went pretty late at night and I was like, you know what, I'm going to grab a coffee. And so I go to the counter, she gets a soda and some popcorn and I, I, I ordered a coffee and the guy goes, nah, man. And I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of like, wait, huh? Did, did you just tell me no? Right? I don't Dude, even know what to do. It's because you vibrated such a non-alpha aura. He was like, give me the clippers. Like, give me the credit card. I'll buy what you need. Dude, it, it was my Ben Carson Allen Keys voice. I was like, may I, may I please have a cup of coffee? <laughs> and so the guy was like, nah, man. And I was like. I, I, what I, I can't you guys out of coffee uh you know and he's like i can't i can't let you do that he's like you don't want the coffee here he was like trust me you don't want the coffee uh-uh and i was like okay uh, i'll just take uh <laughs> so it's funny this guy had zero confidence in his coffee and he sold me on the idea of, of having zero confidence but you know one, one thing i wanted to say about this is that this is why i think it's so important to take an experimental and empirical approach to learning where you base the value of what you're doing on the feedback you're getting from reality. Um, so for instance, I, I recently uh, spoke with someone who um, has a pitch proposal for their employer. It's a project proposal that they want to pitch to their employer. And the guy said to me, he goes, I'm really nervous about this. I, it's got a lot of flaws and I've been working on it for several months and I know they're not going to like this. They're not going to like that. But I'm just wondering what can I do to make it better? And I said, have, are you basing the, um, the opinion that it has a lot of flaws? Are you basing that on something specific they said to you? And he says, no. And I says, what are you basing it on? He says, well, it, it's the way I feel about the pitch. I said, fair enough, but you've been working on this for about three months, right? He says, yes. I said, has anyone seen this other than you? He goes, no. And I said, all right, look, man, you've been working on it for three months. I'm not sure how much better this pitch is going to get if you spend an extra day or week on it. I would just take the risk of getting some things wrong and go make the pitch because once they tell you no, you can then solicit feedback about what you need to do 
in order to turn that no into an emphatic yes. But even if you get the idea perfect in your head, it doesn't mean it's going to work once you present it to them. They still might not like it. And, and I think one of the things that we do when we learn is we overemphasize how something seems in our head. We underemphasize the importance of getting feedback from reality. And in many of these situations where people are afraid to make the recommendation, it's because they have some sort of idea of what would happen if they were wrong, and that idea doesn't come from reality. I mean, how many people have actually recommended with confidence a certain kind of coffee to a guy, had that person dislike the coffee, and then come back in and yell at them and you know tell the manager they want that person fired? Chances are that girl didn't learn her fear from a real scenario. Chances are she learned it from an imagined scenario. We just fear failure. We fear being wrong. But People who actually immerse themselves in the creative process, people who take a lot of risk, they understand that failure from the inside out always looks and feels different from failure as a hypothetical scenario. And when you experience failure from the inside out, you realize that it's not only a lot more palatable than we imagined, but you also have a lot more inner resources to deal with that failure. And so I say... Sometimes you just got to take chances and see what it's like being wrong. When I was a server, I would do this. I would experiment. People would tell me that, that, that you know, this is the kind of wine they like and, you know, they, they like these properties and attributes and so forth. And there would be about three different wines that would kind of sort of fall in that category. And I just pick one and I'd be like, I think this is the one you need. I think this is the wine that's going to make your day. And I didn't do it because I knew it would work. I knew that it was 50-50. I might even be wrong, but I wanted to conduct an experiment. Let's see if this works. And if it does, let me see if I can learn from what worked about that moment. And if it fails, let's see what happens. And the stakes are so low. You know, the um, four of my favorite words. I have two forward for phrases that I say are my four favorite words. So I guess I have eight favorite. The first is compared to what? Wait, that's three words. <laughs> Um, <laughs> crap. I love you, man. I don't do math. Oh no, no, that's you. Um, <laughs> no, but my four favorite words as if it's true, as if it's true. And I think if you adopt this approach to everything, to writing, to decision-making, making pitches, proposals, uh, to belief systems that you're exploring, you get so much more out of something if you operate as if it's true and find out what the results are. So, you know, when, when this guy goes to pitch his proposal to this company, instead of saying, well, there's all these things that may or may not be true about this. This may not be the best way to do this. This may not be the best way to word this. This structure may not be. Assume everything in there is the best. It is, this is true, this is correct. And pitch it like it is. Pitch it as if it's true 100%. Because that's the only way you're going to get real feedback on the actual elements that might have weaknesses. Whereas if you pitch the whole thing as if you don't know if it's true, the feedback's going to be, this whole thing seems questionable. But you already pitched it that way. You haven't gained any knowledge. It's the same with writing. If you write, you know, if you come upon an idea and you're like, you know what, I think that you know, whatever, uh, escaping into fiction is actually healthier for you than not escaping into fiction and reading the news. Instead of writing an article about this may be the case, it's possible in some settings, I've been pondering this, just write, this is true, write as if it's true. And the feedback you'll get from that is going to be so much more valuable than if you 
go into it saying, I don't know if this is true. If you go, well, there's three different types of wine. They all, you don't learn anything. Whatever they pick, you don't learn anything. But if you're like, this is true. And then they're like, this is terrible. You can adjust. And so act as if it's true, I think is really valuable. And it, and it reminds me of a, a phrase that I don't think is originated with Mark Andreessen, the, the venture capitalist, but um, he's popularized it is strong opinions weakly held. And so if you hold the opinion, a strong opinion, this is the mm. right wine for you. It comes off as if it's true. It comes off strong. But the weakly held part is now you've acted as if it's true. If someone comes back and says, wait a minute, that's not right. You immediately, the weekly held part comes in and you're like, oh, show me why not. Okay, cool. Well, you know what? At no charge, I'll get you the other kind of wine. Or you give that bit, that presentation to the business as if this is true, strong, you own it. You're like, this is the best course of action. And if they come back and say, yes, great. If they come back and say, I do not like what you did in section two. I do not think that works for us. Say, cool. Let me tell, tell me why I'm totally open to it because it's weakly held. And I think that combination is so powerful. We think that if you have a strong opinion, you have to hold it so tightly that you present it strong. And then if anyone objects, you're like beholden, even if their objection has truth in it, you're beholden to keep defending it. And it's the opposite. And if you're willing to listen to objections, it doesn't mean that you have to assume them already on the front end, you know? So if you were to go the opposite and say, well, people are gonna object to this thing that I'm writing. So I'll write all their objections in ahead of time. You know, I understand this doesn't apply to everyone. Well, sometimes this was, then it's just total BS. You can't make heads or tails of it, but have a strong opinion, act as if it's true, but hold it weekly, deliver it out there. And if you get feedback, adjust and don't let, don't take it personally. I think that combination is a really hard one. It's, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around, but it's so powerful. Oh man. Um, the, the method, uh, theater practitioner Stanislavski, he referred to this as the magic if, you know, where in, in your process of character development, instead of saying, you know, how can I play this role or how can I act out this part? You say, what would I do if these conditions were true, what would I do if it were 9 p.m. right now? What would I do if I were in a situation where someone held a gun to my head? What would I do? And so many other possibilities open up to you when, when you invoke that magic if and you treat it as if it were real. This also reminds me of something that Brian Brenberg talks a lot where he, he describes entrepreneurship as the process of testing hypotheses. And, and in order to test the hypothesis, you have to Treat it as if it's real. You can't say, well, this might be wrong, so let's make sure we only, you know, test the experiment halfway uh, and, you know, let's make sure we don't, you know, try too hard. No, no, no. You, in, in order to know if it's true, you have to say, let's treat this as if it's solid. Let's treat this as if it's, if it's the truth. And then let's see if the results from this experiment falsify it or if it seems to confirm it. And then and then you adjust your opinion in the light of the evidence. And I think a lot of people hear this kind of stuff and they say, well, isn't that arrogant? Isn't that arrogant to just be confident when you're not certain? No, 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 it's arrogant to be confident when your proposition has been disconfirmed and you hold on to it anyway. But the only way to really test an idea is to invoke it and apply it with confidence. The confidence that, hey, I'll be okay if I'm wrong, you know? I like that. Uh, hey, you ready for a new segment? I'm ready for a new segment, man. Facebook warriors. Ow, ow. <laughs> <laughs> we got to work on that uh, musical interlude. Um, do you have any nominations for Facebook warriors? 
Oh man, I've got I've got several nominations. I don't know where to begin. I I think I'll start with your um Wait, hold on. For people who are new to this, we decided we're going to start doing it's like just self-serious uh Facebook posts or just like funny overly intense things people do on Facebook. I don't know how else to describe it. I'm I'm real I'm real tempted to nominate the guy from uh Steve Patterson's post, but but uh Wait, I want to go <laughs> This was the dude that uh, wrote wrote him like a page, uh, like a page response to uh, to you know the best philosophers being the guys with degrees and just how upset he is with 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 Steve for just daring to do philosophy without a degree. When when I uh, when I read this guy's comments, I was thinking to myself, you know what, this guy is evil, and people like him are evil because this dude is apparently so knowledgeable about philosophy he's apparently such a great philosopher that he is depriving us of what his awesome podcast would be he's forcing me to listen to steve patterson when i want to do some philosophy and i can't listen to him this guy's evil you know if what he's saying is true you know he's evil he's spending all his time writing letters to steve when he needs to be making a podcast but all right here's my real nominee though <laughs> you you wrote an article for fee uh come and take it go and make it and you just talked about innovating around systems of of oppression and so forth and um the comment was when i go and make it what do i do when the tax man comes to take part of it do i then get to say come and take it do i go to prison for non-payment do i pay up and go make something else um I thought this was the the comment of the week, man. First of all, I, I like the fact that this person referred to the tax man, the IRS as the tax man. I, I think that would just be a great superhero character or maybe a good horror movie, kind of like The Purge meets Friday the 13th where the tax man cometh. But um, I thought it was funny because th th this is a very common type of response when anyone says anything remotely close to, hey, guys. Here's something constructive we can do in spite of the BS we have to deal with. Someone always feels the need to say something like, yeah, that's uh, great, Isaac, but you do know that I have to pay taxes, right? <laughs> uh, that, that's real cute, Isaac. That's real cute that you think there are some constructive things I can do in spite of the society we live in. But uh, you do know that I'm still limited in my ability to buy guns, right? <laughs> you know, so, will somebody please wake this brother up and let him know that limitations still exist? <laughs> you know? and, and what was funny to me is it's like, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's say Isaac hadn't written this article, okay? What's your alternative compared to what? What's your alternative to say, since the tax man is going to come for you, that you shouldn't attempt to innovate, that you shouldn't create anything. It, it's like all the pressure is on you to show why we should do anything creative when limitations still exist. When even if your suggestion wasn't on the table, those limitations would still be real. Like this is our starting point. Like we got to deal with this, guys. Hey, like this person, this person was literally about to go and make it and make some massive world changing thing. Until it occurred to them that, oh, but wait a minute. If I do that, government will come and tax me some. Crap, I better not. I guess I can't. You know, like like as if as if the absence of creativity keeps you in a world where you are not subject to the tax man. I mean, the fact that you're not making something, innovating right now, are, are you are you 
not being harassed at all? Are you not having to pay taxes? Uh, that sounds kind of cool. Like, like it's already a reality now. This is nothing new. Nothing new is added to the equation if you decide to be more creative. It, it reminds me of people who, who talk about things that they really want to accomplish. And they say things like, yeah, I, I would love to do something like that. But, man, it will probably take me at least a few years just to get it off the ground. It's like, yeah, but those few years are going to come anyway. It's, it's, it's not like if you don't do anything, time is going to slow down for you and the universe is just going to give you an extra three years. You're still losing those three years. The, the question is, how do you get the most out of the three years that you lose? So uh, I've got two nominations and they both Kick. have to do with our colleague, Derek McGill. So, so one, <laughs> oh, this is awesome. These are mostly just sort of weird, but one of them, uh, Voice and Exit shared a post about um that derek you and derek will be running a workshop there or a, a breakout session at voice and exit yeah. yeah and it has a picture of derek and this this person commented it just said this guy looks good comma not gay <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like is the, is the person saying Derek looks good and Derek's not gay or Derek looks good because he's not gay or is it hey I'm just a man and I just want to acknowledge that this other man looks good and I am not gay I'm saying this is totally <laughs> not gay whatever the purpose it was so strange and so vague oh my gosh I love posts like that from hey, wait, strangers. Wait. really quick my, my buddy Jared got a message from a guy it was a private message not a comment on his Facebook profile <laughs> <laughs> so he put up a profile pic and the guy hit him up with a private message and said, hey, homie, don't take this the wrong way. But you're looking good on a profile pic. And, <laughs> and it was like, wait a minute. Telling someone that their profile picture looks good is pretty a pretty common thing to do. And had you just written it on the profile pic, there wouldn't have been a wrong way to take it. But you sent the private message and you're like, hey, don't take this the wrong way. I don't know what the wrong way is, but I'm looking like saying, for it. Hey, don't don't take this the wrong way, TK, but your last post got me thinking. You know, it's like <laughs> right. your post got me thinking. That's great. Uh, don't take this the wrong way. You're like, oh, crap. What are you thinking about? You know, yeah, oh, now man. I'm looking for the wrong way. <laughs> this guy looks good, comma, not gay. Um, another one. Derek shared a post that he was in a coffee shop and he was overhearing a recruiter talk with a recent graduate about a job opportunity. And he asked her a question like, what's the difference between high school and college? And she like couldn't answer or it was something about, um, you know, what, what's the, what have you, what's the most important thing you've done besides college? And she was like, uh, not really anything. I don't yeah. know. And then Derek had some commentary about, you know, it's no surprise this girl was really having a hard time thinking of anything in the real world she'd accomplished because, you know, most students spend their time class all day and then carted to, you know, extracurricular after school activities that are basically an extension of school and blah, 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 blah. So this was his post. And then this one woman's like, yeah, I had, I don't know what you're talking about here. I like a lot of stuff that you post, but I've got to disagree with you here. And so you're thinking, oh, she disagrees. She's going to make a substantive argument about how uh, classrooms or extracurricular activity are actually the most valuable thing you can do or something like that. And she's like, I did extracurricular activities and it wasn't what you described wasn't my experience. <laughs> and it's like, it's like the classic thing we talk about. 
hey, what you just posted doesn't apply to me, so you shouldn't have posted it. Yeah, you know, it's like, TK, you know, you post, oh, I was so emotional after the Bulls lost, and somebody else is like, well, I'm a Bulls fan, and I didn't feel emotional. Why, why did you post this? I disagree. You know, it's like, <laughs> if it doesn't apply to you, then the post isn't for you. You don't need to, like, let us all know that your personal experience was different than this one. Like, are you saying that what Derek is describing literally doesn't exist anywhere for anyone? If not, then he's talking to those people and not to you. You know, just the classic, this doesn't apply to me, so you shouldn't have posted it comment. I love those. Oh, man, it, it reminds me of the people who sometimes comment on my stuff. I'll say something like, hey, you know what? Sometimes life is crappy, but you can get through it. You know, I'll say something like that, and then there will always be that person that's like, well, life is never crappy for me. It's like, come on, dude, <laughs> go away. This wasn't for you. Obviously, you don't need anything. <laughs> hey, totally unrelated topic. And I don't, I know this this week, which we usually don't do, we made a little list of a few things we wanted to cover, and this was not, um, I didn't talk over this one with you or whatever. I think we've moved through those. Um, but Why I, Ryan Reynolds I, is the greatest actor of our generation? Not gay. <laughs> <laughs> That's, we're going to add that to the queue along with that's racist. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> hey, Derek um, McGill, for the record, Derek McGill, I think you're a good looking brother and it doesn't matter if I'm gay or not. All right, go ahead. Um, so uh, the other weekend I was at um, a Students for Liberty conference and speaking about entrepreneurship and my talk was basically about one of the most effective ways to change the world and make it a freer place, in fact, I argued the most effective, is through innovating and simply creating the type of world that you want to live in um, instead of protesting against it, blah, 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 blah. So I give this talk on it and you know get a great reception and get a nice Q&A. And then the very last question of the Q&A, this, uh, this guy says, what are you? <laughs> which I thought was a great question. And I was like, uh, a human being? What, I'm not sure. What do you mean? He's like, no, like, where do you stand? And I'm like, uh, on the stage, you know? And he's like, he's like, no, he's like, no, like, what would you describe your beliefs as? And he was clearly very troubled. Like he had, based on his interactions, you know, his, um, his facial expressions and things during the talk. And I had a little discussion during the talk. He was engaged and he was like interested. It seemed like he was very interested in the talk and, and liked it and clearly probably like sort of challenged by some of the things, but like in, in a good way, but he was so vexed by, he didn't know. And at first I didn't know what he was asking, but I found out he was asking for a label. He goes, are you like, what do you believe about the role of government? Which wasn't the topic of my talk. Um, are you an anarchist? And, there are contexts where I will use labels. I'll be fine saying, oh, I'm a libertarian or I'm an anarchist or I'm an entrepreneur or I'm a, you know, whatever. Um, I'm a skeptic. I'm a, you know, I'm fine with labels in certain contexts, but I could tell this was one of those times. And I want to know if you've had some of these examples as well, where this guy had had something awesome, which is a mental challenge, a, a, a paradigm shattering experience. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to like talk up the, presentation I gave or anything like that, but it was, he met someone who held a set of beliefs that didn't fit into pre-existing labels he had. He was like thinking maybe this guy is an anarchist, but like he was confused because maybe what he thinks of as anarchist, I didn't quite fit or maybe other things. So he just, he wanted all that confusion to just sort of like go away. Like 
if he could name me, then he could sort of shut down the the confusion and tuck me away somewhere and be like, oh, okay, you're one of those, right? Like this is, at least this is sort of how I interpret it. And so I chose to not give him a label. I said, I believe in anything that's peaceful and nothing that's not. Thank you. I'll be here afterwards to talk. And then I was done. That was the end of my and afterwards, one of the other speakers, actually Jeff Tucker, sort of poked fun at me for that. Like, Isaac's afraid to use the word anarchist, you know? And it's like, it was all good fun. But it was one of those times where I could tell, you know, we've talked about words a lot. And the power to define something, it has both a creative and a destructive power. To call something into being, to, to, to put a concept into a word has power. And it has a creative power often to be able to find the right metaphor for something you're wrestling with can help you overcome that thing. It also has a subtle, sinister, sort of destructive limiting power. And to put something into words, it's almost a way to shut things down. I've experienced this many times. You're having a conversation with someone and you're like, do you think that it's fair if I wanna sell something to someone and they wanna buy it from me is it fair for somebody else to come in and, and stop us? Or if I want to rent my apartment to someone and they want to rent it and no one's being harmed, is it fair for me to do this? And they're like, they're tracking, they're interested, they're kind of challenged. And then all of a sudden they'll, they'll get this panic moment and they'll be like, wait a minute, are you saying that we shouldn't have immigration restrictions? Wait a minute, are you a, are you a free market guy? Wait a minute, are you arguing, you know, are, are you arguing this policy or this? And they want to label it. And I can tell in that moment, if I give in and say, yes, label, they immediately shut down that stretching and challenging capacity that's going on in their mind and say, oh, well, I already disagree with that, or I already agree with that. And I hate that. I hate it when that tries to happen. Not because I'm like, don't label me. I'm above all labels. Like, I don't care. I'll use them when they're convenient. I'm not like a stickler about that. But it was one of those moments where I could just tell this guy was having to rearrange his concepts and his labels and it was uncomfortable and he wanted a quick easy way to get out of that experience and I just felt like I had to refuse to give it to him have you ever experienced that with yourself or with others all the time man all the time you know it's almost as if people are asking when they request a label where are you trying to take me yeah. What am I really conceding, right? Like and you're it was setting after the talk, up. by the way, I was done. So it's like, I just told you explicitly where I'm trying to take you. You know, I had words on my slides that told you exactly what I'm trying to convey. No more, no less. You know, like you, you don't have to, you don't have to try to get it into something. It's not, it's already there. It's no, it's not an esoteric message here, you know? Yeah, you know, I, I, I do think though, there are certain ideas that have become so associated with with certain kinds of reactions to those ideas that people are scared to concede what would otherwise be rather obvious points because of perceived implications. So take for instance, uh, suppose I ask people to um, acknowledge the existence of people who are both poor um, and, and, and people who are poor for no fault of their own. They're not poor because they have bad work ethic, because they don't know how to market themselves, but they are genuinely poor because something happened in their life, you know, that they're not responsible for. I think it's obvious that there are people like this. I, I think it's pretty hard to deny. And yet there are many people who would struggle to admit that because they're afraid that if they say yes to that, that means they're committing now to the welfare state, right? They're committing to the notion that the government ought to do a particular thing in a particular way to resolve that. 
And, and so you have people that are nervous about admitting pretty basic, uncontroversial observations because of those perceived implications. So I think this happens a lot. It reminds me of a time when I was in college. I was working at an assisted living facility, the night shift, and I, I would always read a lot of philosophy and theology because I spent a lot of time alone at night. There was another woman in my building who she would always read her Bible, and I, I would always be reading my book. She'd always be reading the Bible, and, and she would sometimes show me these Bible verses and talk with me about them, and we'd have discussions. So one day, I'm reading a book. The title of the book is Jewish Meditation, and it's written by a guy, if I remember, I think it was Arya Kaplan or something like that. And there was a particular passage in that book where he said something really interesting about the Psalms. He gave it this really interesting historical context. And I knew that she was really interested in that. And I said, oh, check this out. Check this out. I didn't even think. I just ran the book over to her, showed her the passage. She read it and she goes, "Woo!" She goes, man, that's good. And she goes, what book is that? And I'm like, oh, shoot. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I show her the cover and it says Jewish meditation. And she sort of gives me the side eye. And she's like, you got to be careful with books like that. You got to be careful with books like that. You know, you, you, you got to stick with the Bible. You got to stick with the word. I was like, yeah, OK. Uh, and, and I just sort of, <laughs> you know, walked away like, forget it. You know, uh, everything was lost, you know, because it didn't come from the right source. Um, and, and, and I think some people are just. Some people are just genuinely afraid of being taken advantage of or deceived or taken down the wrong path. Some people are afraid of the perceived implications. But I've just always been of the school of thought, man, that a good idea is a good idea. And you never reject something just because uh, certain types of people believe it. And in fact, I, I had someone get upset with me once because I, I suggested that we should innovate around systems of oppression. And they said, uh, systems of oppression, that's language that social justice warriors use. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm not even informed enough to know if that's true or not, but I really don't care. I mean, even if that is like the favorite term of social justice warriors, I like the phrase innovate around systems of oppression because it's a really good phrase. And who cares what camp it's associated with? If it's a good idea, it's a good idea. It reminds me of the Christian philosopher Dallas Willard, who was talking within the context of Christian apologetics, and he was speaking to a group of Christians, and he said to them, he said, breakfast is a good idea, and I do not intend to abandon it simply because Hindus practice it, you know? Uh, and all too often, we're scared of good ideas, and we rob ourselves of the opportunity to learn awesome con uh, concepts because you know, uh, you know, liberals say that or conservatives say that or I, I think Trump believes that, too. And it's like it just doesn't matter, man. Good ideas are good ideas. Why would you limit your life, uh, you know, with that kind of thinking? Hey, so I want to I want to touch on one more thing um, and then mention briefly a cool new uh, free resource we have available through Praxis. Um, you got time for one more topic? Heck, yeah. You're like, it's not like I have any work to do. You know, <laughs> like if I say, day, yeah, you know, I'm going to be nervous. I'm going to be like, uh, <laughs> you don't have anything else going on. But if you say, no, I'm too busy. That's a risk as well. I put you in a bad spot, man. I work for Praxis. I get all day. <laughs> this is what I do. <laughs> um, so I was thinking about this the other day. Actually, I was talking to a uh, Cameron Soresby, our, our colleague and 
we were talking about, he mentioned something to the effect that before he started Praxis, because he was a Praxis participant uh, before we hired him, before he started Praxis, he said he had never had to work hard at anything in his life with one exception, and that was soccer. He played soccer at a very high level, very competitively throughout his his youth. Um, and he said, he so he had never had to work hard at school or jobs. Like he had always done fine, but he just d- didn't require hard work. And so he didn't know if he could. And being pushed and challenged, he sort of discovered that he could. And that kind of really made him like reach a whole new level in life and performance, fulfillment, whatever. But so he said, you know, I'd never had to work hard at anything. And he said, I think that was like, kind of a tragedy he said with the exception of soccer and we started talking about that and he said that was like all he cared about as a kid and I said similarly for me between the ages of probably seven or eight and 12 or 13 baseball was pretty much all I cared about I mean I played Legos and did other things but like you know I had school work and I had you know some household chores and things that I had to do but I don't remember any of those I didn't care about any of those if I was allowed to and Cameron said the same thing I would have just played baseball and studied baseball and watched baseball and practiced and done nothing else. And I think I would have been no worse for it. In fact, I think I would have been a little better for it. When I think back on those ages, anything I remember, anything valuable I took away was related to my passion, which was baseball. It was related to the to the one thing that I really dove deep into. And I was prevented from diving as deep as I wanted to because I had all these other things I had to do. And Cameron said the same about soccer. And it got me thinking once again about this absurd way that we approach education and this silly concept of a well-rounded person who's 10% good at everything, you know, 10% good at 10 things and has never learned to put 100% into anything, has never had to work hard at anything, has never mastered anything. And I think the lie is that, well, you don't know yet what you're gonna do, so you need to be knowledgeable on a broad range of topics. That's how you'll figure out, and that's how you'll eventually become good at something, and maybe someday down the road you'll specialize, but don't specialize too early, don't focus too much on one thing, you gotta be broad, you gotta be, don't get obsessed with something, it'll be unbalanced. Because we believe that being exposed to a low level of mastery of tons of things will make us better able to choose one and then master it, which is the exact opposite. Because when you become obsessed with soccer or baseball or making YouTube videos or fishing or whatever it is for one year, two years, 10 years, what you're actually learning is not soccer or baseball or whatever else. What you're actually learning is how to master something, is how to do deep learning, is how to be fully immersed in something. And it's amazing if you decide that's no longer valuable to you or you hit your ceiling with that, you can, in a snap, switch to something else and master that because you know the most important thing, which is how to master something. Versus the other way around, if you just do a shallow dive into 15 things, and then you finally pick one that you wanna focus on, you've never learned to work hard. You've never learned to master anything, and you don't know how to become a master at it. And it reminded me of this great section in the book, uh, I think it's free, not free to learn, um, Free at Last, or something like that. It's a little book of stories of the Sudbury Valley School which is a school where uh, kids from ages four to 18 just show up and do whatever they want, literally do whatever they want. There's some adults around just in case anyone has questions or anything and they can study, they can play, whatever. And there's all these individual stories, these individual kids that are amazing, but there's one kid who came 
And he was like, like they all do, like what? I get total freedom. This is weird. And it takes him a while to like learn how to actually have fun because they, they don't believe it at first. But so he's like, okay, there's a pond on the property. He fished. He fished all day. His parents would drop him off. He would fish all day long. Not talk to anybody, not do anything else. He did that for the first day and the first week and the first month. He did that for the first year. All day, every day, he did nothing but fish. And then he started learning about fishing and studying how to do it better and reading all this stuff and getting... He was obsessed with fishing in this pond. And then he would get one or two friends would come join him for various periods of time and get really into it. That's all he did for, I think it was like three years straight. Now consider the typical parent. I'm sending my kid to this school or this place and all he does all day, every day is fish. He's not developing any other skills. He's not learning math or he's not playing sports or he's not developing social skills with other kids. He's not, how's he going to know what he wants to do in life? You can't make a career out of fishing in a pond. What, you know, what he's obsessing over fishing and that's his all consuming thing. He doesn't bring homework home because this is Sudbury. So it's just fishing all day, every day. That would scare the crap out of most parents. One day this kid literally, because no one was there saying, keep fishing and you got to turn it into a career because you've put in all this time or no one was there saying, stop fishing and learn something important. He was just free to do whatever he wanted. One day with no fanfare, with no big dramatic event, he just got bored of fishing. He stopped fishing and he never fished again. And he decided he wanted to learn coding. He taught himself to code in like six weeks and he graduated a few years later from the school and he has been a successful computer engineer ever since. Because... He was free to dive deeply and to master something and to learn how to learn, how to obsess, how to become amazing. And once he was like, okay, this is no longer challenging or meaningful to me. I'm done. I'm bored. The next thing he chose, he mastered it quickly, easily. And he's been just fine, has had a very successful life. And I think that's so powerful for us to remember for kids and for ourselves this idea of being well balanced a well balanced person is boring someone who has an obsession is going to be awesome even if that obsession comes crashing down or it just, it's no longer relevant if they threw themselves 100% into something and they know how to do that they're going to know how to throw themselves 100% into anything Man, I, I think that is that is absolutely the, the key the understanding that I think this notion of being a well-balanced person, it's based on two illusion, illusions. Uh, first, it's based on the illusion that if you think you're balanced, you actually are balanced just because you study a bunch of stuff. You're not. If you, if you honestly think you're balanced because you've studied a bunch of things, that just means you have no idea how many other fields and subjects and topics there are out there. You have no idea how much you don't know. You're not balanced at all. You just know a little bit about a few things and not enough about any of those things to be of much value to anyone. And the other illusion that it's based on is this idea that it's possible to be one dimensional if you dedicate yourself to something. If you just focus on one thing, you're one dimensional. And I, I think part of this comes from never learning how to sell what we do, never learning how to frame what we do. So for instance, I, I talked to a young man who was applying for a job at a bank and he said he had no experience. I says, do you have no experience or do you have no experience that you think is worth bragging about? He conceded that it was the latter. I said, tell me about the experience that you have, even if you're ashamed of it. And he said, well, I've, I worked as a, a, um, 
a, a soccer referee, you know? And I said, okay, so th that's the one job you had. And he says, yeah. And he said it very sheepishly. He was really ashamed to have been a soccer referee because he felt like his desire to be a banker was so much different from that. And I said, all right, I want you to tell me about the skills that you need you know, to get this job at the bank. And he named all these skills. Like he needs good judgment. He needs to be reliable. He needs to, you know, be, you know, have good self-management skills. He needs to know how to sell his ideas, all these different types of things. And I said, all right, let's talk about what you did as a soccer ref. I says, is it true that there were moments where you might have wanted one team to win, but you had to exercise self-restraint and choose to be objective in spite of your own interests? And he says, oh yeah, I experienced that a lot. I said, okay, so that's one thing that was required of you as a soccer ref. What about good judgment? Were there times when other people objected to the calls you made and you had to be able to defend your position or just get over the fact that people were angry with you about the choice you made? And he said, oh yeah. And I says, did that cause you to grow? And he says, absolutely. I says, did you learn some self-control? Did you learn emotional competence? Did you learn how to sell your ideas by doing that? And he says, absolutely. I said, did you have to come to the games early? He said, every single time I had to be there an hour early. And we went down this list of things that he had to learn to be a soccer referee. And you could see the guy's eyes light up. You could see how much more confident he was becoming as he was reviewing all of these attributes. And it was clear to him at that time that he had been thinking about his soccer refereeing job as one thing because he was focusing on the title. And he wasn't aware of the fact that in order to do that one thing, he had to learn a variety of skills. And the challenge for him was figuring out how to sell that to someone else and show how it can be applied to other things. Derek McGill has an excellent video where he's, he's, uh, he's addressing the question of what skills do I need to learn? And he talks about this idea of preemptive learning, how we say things like, all right, I'm gonna learn how to edit audio clips. I'm gonna learn how to edit videos. And, and he talked about how no one learns things that way. And when people do, they hardly retain what they learn and they have nothing to show for it. But the way you learn these things is by doing something that's interesting to you. So instead of trying to learn how to sell, find something specific that you want to sell. Instead of trying to learn how to edit audio clips, make a podcast and just do it. And even if you do that podcast for six months and you decide you're done and you go apply for a job where it has nothing to do with podcasting, that doesn't matter. What matters is that you learn, you, you learn how to develop specific skills that are applicable to a wide variety of things. In order to run that podcast for six months, you had to schedule with people. You had to learn the basics of not only how to edit audios and videos and upload them, but you had to learn things about marketing. You had to learn things about how to hold a conversation with people, how to communicate your ideas, how to ask good questions. And those things are applicable in a lot of different fields. And most importantly, you have something to show for your skill development as opposed to just saying, yeah, I you know, studied coding for a month and I took some tests and so-and-so over here thinks that I'm, I'm worth something, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. But, but it's, it, it's we're- that, It's that problem-based learning. When you have a real problem that you're passionate about solving, you can learn the inputs necessary to solve that in no time when the incentive's there versus like learning a bunch of random stuff, spending a month studying this, that, or the other thing in case someday you come across a meaningful problem that requires it, you know? Absolutely. You know, it reminds me of, <laughs> I'll use a relationship analogy. You know, you go to the supermarket and you'll always see these magazines that say things like 10 things that every woman wishes her man knew or 10 things that all women need to know about guys. And 
it's easy when you're single to to be duped into thinking that having someone in your life is the reward for knowing all the different things in general that you need to know about how men think and how women work, right? And there's a big market for this. So many people are trying to move themselves into a successful relationship where they become experts at what women want, what, what, what men need. And when you actually get into a relationship and you meet all the people that are married and so forth, you find out a couple of interesting things that number one, the people that are in relationships are just as screwed up and flawed as the people who aren't in relationships and they don't know anything themselves. Number two, they just were fortunate enough to find one person that was willing to put up with them. And number three, they're not experts on the opposite sex or anything like that. They're just become they're just knowledgeable about the particular person that they're with, right? Um and, and that's how life works. You it's don't a, it's a Jeremy McClellan has a great joke where he says, you know, I was never good with women. Um, uh, but you know, I, 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 what do you say? Like, I'm not good at women, but I'm good at one woman and that's my wife. <laughs> like yeah. I figured out how to be good with one person. And, and if you think about that with other things, this might sound controversial at first, but really think about it. Most successful entrepreneurs are not experts on entrepreneurship, right? They're people that figured out a way to provide right. one service or one product this is better than anyone else in the market. Of entrepreneurship is such a strange oxymoron to me. Like I'm going to I'm going to major in entrepreneurship. That's not how it works. You get obsessed with creating something and like I had to get this praxis idea out of my head and into the world. That was my obsession and is my obsession. And in the process of succeeding at that, I had to learn how to start a business, how to uh, attract talent and how to build a pitch deck, how to raise venture capital, how to, I had to learn all kinds of stuff in finance and accounting that I never cared about and paid no attention to and never studied, never had any classes in. I had to learn all kinds of stuff that basically is like being a CEO, being a, a, an entrepreneur, not as an end in itself. So I could be that label but because I have to make Praxis succeed and that's what's required of me. In fact, you find you know, people who are obsessed with something, who do a deep dive into something, they actually are, one of the reasons they're interesting is because to succeed at anything, to master anything, you actually have to become well-rounded. Not in the sense of an artificial well-roundedness, but you know, that kid fishing. Like from the outset, okay, he just became good at fishing. What does that mean? Well, it means a ton of stuff. I mean, first he learns a ton about the natural world, the seasons, uh, temperatures and, you know, plants in the pond and the biology of the fish. He learns a ton about statistics and probability. There's a lot of, you know, you fish in there, this area, a whole bunch, and then you move over here and you're kind of doing these, like, it's like luck versus skill calculations. He goes and reads all these books. He learns how different people write, how different kinds of writing are easier for him to understand than others. He learns how he learns. He learns about the very kinesthetic elements of tying knots and all this other stuff. And you, you know, you start to, you, you are forced to interact with all these other fields. Like, Running this company has forced me to have a deeper philosophy of human nature in the workplace of, you know, whatever you, you become well-rounded in a way that doesn't have the same labels. So you wouldn't say, you know, someone who's obsessed with mastering the game of tennis probably wouldn't say, yes, uh, social studies have been very important to me. But in fact, 
what actually is social studies may actually be a part of what's helped them master the game. Maybe they studied the history of it and understood the way that fans appreciation from tennis has changed. And they learned to capitalize on that by getting endorsement deals based on the, 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 the current trends in society today or whatever. I mean, there's, there's so much that you have to do to master something that it gives you that context to actually become sort of well-rounded or broad in a sense. Like the process of going deep is the best way to be broad in a meaningful way versus the process of just attempting to be broad and well-rounded. You learn one thing and that is how to not master anything. <laughs> you, know? Well, you, you know, so, so th there's a great example of this. Um, um, and, and it might be a good, a good moment to advertise. Why haven't you read this book? Because I have a chapter in there called Why Haven't You Auditioned for American Idol? But um, for those of you who watch, you know, whoever watched American Idol, I, I always found it interesting that they would have these singers up there. And in order for the, you know, the singer to win, be the best and to win the show, they would have to sing all different kinds of songs. Right. So one week you're singing R&B. The next week you're singing country. The next week you're singing classical. And I remember when I when I first started watching that show, I thought to myself, my gosh, Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston could have never won American Idol. You know what I mean? Like Usher could have never won American Idol because yeah, those people can sing everything is an impersonator, not an artist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine Michael Jackson trying to sing country and then trying to 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 show what he could do by singing classical, he would have been destroyed and eliminated like in the first week. I mean, you just imagine the sound of that guy's voice trying to sing classical or country. No way he gets a music career by proving that he can do every genre or that he knows music, but he was good at a very particular kind of thing, but he was so much better at that than everyone else, you know? Um, so the best artists, the best musicians, they don't know everything or most things about their subject. They've just zoomed in on something and become really well. This also reminds me, and this will be a good segue for, I know something that you wanna, you wanna talk about today, critical thinking. I recently had someone ask me, what's the best book I can read to learn how to think critically? And I said to them, you know, there are some a lot of good books on critical reasoning and logic, books that will introduce you to the structure of arguments and logical fallacies and so forth. And I'll recommend a couple of those. Those are useful. But one of my favorite quotes about critical thinking comes from the philosopher Gregory Kokel. He said, critical thinking isn't taught, it's caught. And how do you catch it? You catch it by critically engaging a specific issue. So it really doesn't matter if you're debating Steph Curry versus LeBron James, if you're debating Trump versus Clinton, if you're debating the existence versus the non-existence of God, you pick whatever you want to argue about. But go debate something. Go, go listen to someone argue for a position that is opposite of what you believe. Actually engage a specific idea. And in the process of doing that, you will learn so much more about critical thinking than just treating it as an abstract thing where you say critical thinking is the pro process whereby someone provides premises in support of conclusions and here's the names of all the logical fallacies and so forth. And when you do that, you can actually go back to those textbooks and pick up something on logical fallacies and you can say, ah, red herring, I get it, ad hominem. I get it. Non sequitur. I get it. It makes so much sense because you've had the experience and you understand it, you know, and, and, and that's the part that gets left out, you know, uh, because of this fear of you won't be balanced enough. Being balanced is boring. Um, w when we spend our money to be entertained 
or to be satisfied or served by someone. We never look for the balanced person. We look for the person that's obsessively focused on what it is they're great at. Mm. Um, all right, so uh, we got to wrap up here. I got to go run the uh, live writing workshop uh, that we do every month with the, the Praxis participants who are in month two, the intensive writing module. This is one of my favorite activities every month. I absolutely love doing this. Um, but before we do, we have something cool that is, we just decided, what the heck, let's just make this freely available. So in Praxis, um, after the three-month boot camp, which is you know uh, building a personal brand, building a pitch deck, um, doing an intensive writing workshop, learning basic software that's used at different startups so you can come in and add value on day one, that's, that's the, the boot camp. Then in the six months while you're apprenticing, concurrent with that, you're doing a series of these PDPs, personal or professional development projects. And they kind of rotate between doing those that sort of focus on being better at your apprenticeship and then doing those that just focus on your own personal growth in other areas. And there's, we sort of present a bunch of material and resources and suggestions, but it's very optional. It's very tailored to you. But one of the things we have, a couple of those PDPs are sort of master a subject that you're interested in. Um, and come up with some tangible ways to sort of demonstrate your mastery and whatever. And we provide a whole library of modules on things like history, economics, philosophy, uh, et cetera, to sort of draw from if you so choose. And one of those is an intensive 30-day philosophy module. And if you want to go through the philosophy module and come up with some deliverables for yourself, that's one of the PDPs some of our participants do. Um, and it's pretty awesome. And we decided let's just make this available for everyone for free. So if you want to check out Philosophy in 30 Days, a free course powered by Praxis, go to discoverpraxis.teachable.com. Discoverpraxis.teachable.com. And when you get there, you'll see there's another course there, a teen entrepreneurship course. Um, we're actually uh, altering and making some changes with that one. But the philosophy in 30 days, uh, click on that. We're going to get a, a shorter link eventually, but discoverpraxis.teachable.com. Philosophy in 30 days, it's free. And if you want to challenge yourself, if you're interested in philosophy, if you know a lot or you don't know anything about it, this is like a pretty broad overview and it's... And it's um, it's pretty awesome. I mean, I went through this. I majored in philosophy as an undergrad or, or did I major or minor? I don't know, whatever. I genuinely learned more in this 30-day course than I did for the, the entire uh, philosophy major. Uh, it's really cool. We love it. We love feedback on it. Um, dive in. Engage with it. It's free. It's there. Play around with it. TK, do you have anything to add about you? You built this thing. Um, how would you describe it and, and who maybe would find it enjoyable? I would describe it as as a conceptual analytic approach to philosophy where you learn about great ideas and thinkers by engaging in conversations that stretch throughout history. So you get nice exposure to some of the questions and problems that various philosophers have wrestled with throughout history and, and the context for why these problems were considered problems by them. But you also get an invitation to become a philosopher yourself and to join these conversations and contribute with your own ideas. And I would say this is something that is not only just fun and interesting for people that love engaging in big ideas, love arguing, arguing and debating and love philosophy, but even if you just want to become a better communicator, you want to become better at selling your ideas, 
you want to become better at empathizing with viewpoints that are different from your own, or one of the most underestimated value contributions of philosophy, you want to become better at creative thinking, at seeing possibilities that everyone else overlooks or, or underestimates. This would be a great course that can, I mean, a great 30-day challenge that will really help you develop those abilities. So it's a lot of fun. I love to hear from you too. So if you decide to, uh, to take the to take to to do the thirty days of philosophy. Shoot me an email. Let me know what you're thinking. Give is me some feedback. A, is there a Facebook group associated with it that people going through it can comment? Or there's there's uh, the ability to comment right there in the module, isn't there? There's the ability to comment right there. But yeah, but your yeah, your question right. your question sounded eerily similar to is it good for the environment for you to drink this <laughs> coffee? I'm like, wait a minute, are you telling me to? Uh, all right. I hear you. I hear <laughs> no, you. No, no, no. I just, I couldn't remember if they're the, the best way if you like discussions right on the stuff right there. What, hey, TK, so you've been um, doing, you know, we've constantly are updating it and this will probably be updated regularly uh, as well as we, you know, anytime we find things we want to add or tweak. But you've been using this for, you know, the, the almost three years that we've been running um, Praxis for participants. What if, what if participants liked or not liked about it who's liked it the most what have they found interesting or challenging is there still are there people that have said eh, this isn't really relevant to me or the people that have said oh my gosh this is awesome i love it um you know we have such a focus on tangible context-based learning so it could seem sort of contradictory to be like oh just go randomly dive into philosophy but we don't see it that way but how how the participants that have done it why have they done it what have they liked and stuff like that yeah so we've never had a participant say this seems irrelevant or I don't get why this is important because unlike your typical introduction to philosophy course, this isn't something that anyone is required to take and, you know, as some sort of a gen ed course. And, and we don't say, hey, this is something you got to do and this is objectively important. We say, here are some reasons why you might want to consider this given what your goals are. And everyone that's and done no the test and no grades, it's, it, the point is if you want to build a deliverable around it that will demonstrate to the world, be your own credential, your own form of mastery. Practice advisors work with you to come up with that. And you can sort of use this course as a, as a starting point, as a way to dive in or as a challenge to yourself, you know, but, but sorry, go ahead. No, absolutely, man. So everyone who's taken this, you know, this 30 day uh, philosophy course, they've all came into it with the goal of saying, I, I want to be better at selling my ideas and, communicating in a way that gets other people to hear me. So understanding other people's viewpoints, being able to identify their assumptions and explain my ideas in light of those assumptions, that's important to me. Number two, I, I wanna be a better creative thinker. I want to see the things that other people miss. And something that's really great about the history of philosophy is that philosophers spend most of their time questioning the things that everyone else takes for granted. And if you're not familiar with that, if you haven't been exposed to that before, it can annoy you or it can make you angry. But if you're, you're someone that values art and entrepreneurship, you see that as a very precious activity, right? The ability to question the things that everyone else takes for granted, that's where all good innovation comes from. So people really enjoy the course and, and they say things like, these are questions I've never thought to ask before. Um, these are really cool ideas. Everyone says it's pretty challenging because, you know, the challenge is to do it in 30 days and there's a lot of content in there. But everyone who's gone through this says this has been one of the best 
intellectual exercises they've gone through and they will never see the world the same. And I think that's kind of the goal of life to constantly work on your paradigm. So every day you wake up, you say, I will never see the world the same to never see it, you know, in, in, in a way that's identical to how you saw it the day before. What, what I always find fun and interesting and, and consistent with the theme uh, of the last half of the episode anyway, is, you know, you're going through and you're sort of you know, diving into these different discussions about, you know, whatever the mind body problem or, uh, our, our, is morality objective or whatever. And everybody finds a different thing that they're like, that they kind of obsess over and dive deep on and say, okay, this, this introduced me to this problem or this branch of philosophy or whatever. I want to go deeper and I want to like, I just want to get, go down that rabbit hole. And that's what I love. I love sort of like, uh, a map that, that says, here's a bunch of rabbit holes you can, you can go down and, you know, browse until you find one that you get obsessed with and, and dive deeper. You know, this is, this is a, a sampler platter, so to speak. Um, and it's kind of fun to see which things resonate with which people. Um, and often people who are like, who, especially in practice, people who join the program with a much more pragmatic bent, I want to build my career. I want to do awesome stuff. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to go work at this startup and apprentice, not really the big ideas type. Often they end up getting obsessed with some idea that's totally abstract and having long, you know, debates and discussions about the existence of God or whatever, um, which I always find fascinating. You know, one other thing I say, there's an important distinction between an idea in and of itself and the various reasons for why that idea is held. And it's possible for an idea to be bad or false, but for there to be some pretty sophisticated reasons for why someone would hold on to that belief. And being familiar with that is one of the best tools you can have for resolving conflicts and relationships and overcome problem, overcoming problems in your personal life. Most of our challenges and our inability to overcome them are rooted in looking at certain ideas and thinking of those ideas as stupid and not being able to appreciate how that idea can be construed as sensible. When you develop your ability to do that, it gives you so much power in your personal life in your relationships with others and 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 everything that you try to create. So definitely check it out. I think you'll love it and I love to hear from you. Shoot me an email at tkdiscoverpraxis.com. Let me know if you have any questions about it or what you're thinking about it. All right, so discoverpraxis.teachable.com, free philosophy in 30 days course if anybody wants it. Uh any age, anytime, check it out. All right, here we go. Uh, recommendations, totally unrelated for the most part to what we talked about today, but I'm going to recommend a great book. I was just talking with somebody else about yesterday, uh, punished by rewards by Alfie Cohn, which is about parenting, but it really gives a lot of insight into how most of us, some of the struggles we have, because almost all of us were raised with punishment and reward, uh, externally delivered from our parents being primary motivators and some of the struggles we face because of that. Punished by Reward by Elfie Cohen. What's your recommendation this week? All right, man, that's a good one. I'm going to stick with education and I'm going to say Insult to Intelligence. And it's by Frank Smith and it talks about uh, bureaucratic dominated education and the importance of making a paradigm shift to the kind of market driven, goal oriented stuff that we're doing with Praxis. Not gay. All right. hey man great talking with you again we'll talk next week always man peace